Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Part two of Finland, I am legislate. I am Jones the third, and I'm excited to be here this week. Let's want to invite you to do things. I want to invite you to a uh, friend to watch or share the page, watch, bring people in, and get ready to have a discussion over the next hour. I'm really excited for our esteemed guests that we have us to come to discuss, legislate. Uh, we can bring our guests in. Our very first guest is Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner. She is the CEO and co-founder of Skinner Leadership Institute. Our next guest is my very own pastor, Reverend James T. Meeks here in Chicago, Salem Baptist Church. And then Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III of Trinity United Church of Chicago. And then Michael Ware, a leading strategist and speaker and practitioner at the intersection of faith, politics, and public life. Today, we're going to have a conversation around going forward as it relates to police and criminal justice reform. And so before we jump in, I want to invite our guests, uh, starting with uh, Dr. Uh, Barkin, uh, introduce yourself. Tell us what you'd like us to about and jump in our Okay, thank you so much for having me in this. I think this is one of the most important conversations I've been in for a while. Uh, I am president of Skinner Leadership Institute and co-convener with Dr. Otis Moss, Jr. of the National African American Clergy Network, a denomination and independent church leaders around the country. Um, I am a civil and human rights and uh, social justice advocate, and I've been working for the past 30 years uh, with clergy, uh, social activists, clergy, and others around voting rights, health care reform, the census, and now uh, on this issue of, of just policing, not just criminal justice reform, but just policing. Hey, Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Did I say that I was from California, from Oakland, so I know a little bit about policing, bad policing? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Dr. Skinner. Dr. Moss. Uh, Otis Moss, Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. Uh, we are a community that is Christ-centered, liberation-focused, Afrocentric, and uh, community uh, developing. And uh, we have been in operation since 61, uh, where we're committed to transforming a portion of the south side of Chicago into a thriving community, not through gentrification, but through a renaissance. Thank you, thank you. My pastor, Pastor Meeks. I'm Pastor James Meeks, pastor of the Salem Baptist Church here in Chicago. I have been pastor in Salem for 35 years. I've been a pastor for 40 years, and I am a former Illinois state senator, 
So I was in the state Senate for 10 years. I served with uh, Barack Obama before he became president when he was just a lowly state senator. So <laughs> I've heard a few things. I know a few things about legislation. And I'm Watson Jones, the third pastor. And so that's my claim to fame. <laughs> Mike. Yeah, I'm Michael Ware. I'm chief strategist for the Ann campaign, a co-author of our book coming out later this month, Compassion and Conviction. Um, we were blessed blessed to have Dr. Uh, William Skinner write the foreword for that. Um, I, I help folks think about what it means to be faithful in public life. That's been my calling. When I got into this calling, uh, I needed help and still need help thinking through those things. And I was able to look to Dr. Barbara William Skinner. I was able to look to Reverend Moss and your father, who I love and admire, and 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 Pastor Meeks. And so I, I I'm just thrilled to be on this call and um, looking forward to the conversation. Welcome and thank you all for joining. We're going to have a conversation today around legislation and policing. Let me jump into my first question because you all are faith leaders in your own right. Uh, I wanna ask this, uh, what role does faith play in the conversation around policing? What role does faith play in the conversation around policing? And whoever wants to jump in on that can go ahead. Let me start real quick and jump in and say that whatever we do as believers, it takes faith. Whatever we're going to believe for, it takes we know that we're in a terrible state in america with policing but faith is the substance of things hoped for and so everything starts with our idea uh everything starts with what we see in the future everything starts with what we're hoping for or planning for and all of that that is simply faith so the role that faith plays is that it takes faith for us to get started Thank you, Dr. Pastor Meeks. Thank you. Does anyone else want to speak to that? No, I would just simply add to what, what Dr. Meeks stated that we we set the moral compass. Uh, we uh, set the ethical foundation that it is key for uh, the faith community to be a part of the discussion, uh, raising questions that politicians are afraid to raise when it, in mm -hmm. reference to the, uh, the ethical and moral sphere of how we design policy that is humane and has a moral compass and not a compass that seeks to profit from people, but has a prophetic uh, position in terms of its development. Okay. I would add that there are over 2000 verses of scripture on God's preferential concern for the vulnerable and that policing, just policing is about caring for the vulnerable. We cannot disconnect Jesus concerned about justice and be followers of Jesus and not be concerned about it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I, I just say, you know, faith, uh, I agree. Faith helps you get started. Uh, faith is also what helps you persevere. This work is not easy. It's not, uh, it's not a clear input and output. There are setbacks uh, and false traps and uh, faith can uh, not only help you get started, but is what you can fall back on, what you can rely on when the system and the processes don't don't work as 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 they should. Thank you. Thank you. And I think y'all would be as faith leaders, we need to be speaking to this and specifically pushing for legislative change. 
around policing to make it a more just policing. Let me jump into a really interesting question. Uh, as we've seen in the last several few weeks, much conversation around the subjects of uh, defunding, abolishing, or reform is kind of three camps, and people tend to fall in anywhere in those three camps. Um, if you, I would love to ask you all, and, and I would love to hear everyone's voice voice on this. Uh, where, where do you stand on that subject uh, of, of reform, defunding, or abolishing? And tell me a little bit why. Well, I, I will go ahead and start because uh, I, I'm not uh, a fan of reform. We, we've done reform over and over again. And uh, the reforms that have been put in place uh, have, have not been effective for, uh, especially for the African-American community. Uh, we have to literally reimagine what policing uh, is to be, and we have to have a public health model, which means when the term defund, people get tripped over because they all of a sudden think there's going to be no police, there's anarchy. We, we want the same type of public health that if you lived in Lake Forest, that people who are wealthy receive, that you don't send seven police cars with someone who has a mental health challenge. We want the same type of public health perspective that other nations do all the time. Uh, that you have a specific role for uh, for people who are mental health workers, social workers. Uh, we have militarized the police because policing that we have in the United States comes out of the slave catching model uh, that has been focused systematically on controlling people of color. Our bodies have been weaponized. And every time we reform, we keep the same system in place. Uh, so we have to reimagine and we have a, a wonderful imagination. We can put people on the moon uh, so that we can reimagine what it means to have a public health model where we see people as human beings and not simply as criminals or we are occupying a territory to control people who certain individuals may not be, believe belong in society. So we just have to have, we have to completely reimagine. So I fall on the defunding side I fall on the reimagined side. Uh, I fall closer to the, the, the abolishing side. Uh, reforms to me have not, uh, from, from historically, have not worked. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Uh, not, I wouldn't use the word defunding. I love your uh, conception of reimagining. Uh, I live right now in a black community in Washington, DC. I lived previously in a largely white community. There's no connection between the way police treat us here versus when I was in a white community. Police are there to help you do whatever you need to do. They are helpers. They're public safety. They are there to support you in every way. My neighbors knew that. I just happened to have gotten the benefit of it because I was in that community. Here it is the police see us as dangerous, as dangerous, and they have to control us. And I think that has been rooted in the system of slavery. And if you don't see that in the uh, slave patrols and the black codes and, and uh, all, the, um, uh, all of the issues that have taken place that have controlled black bodies, police see black men especially and black people, let's say that includes women, as dangerous. So that means no amount of violence is enough to control them. To understand policing, you have to just look at our history. And so you can't paper over that. Uh, I think we have to start there. Uh, I believe that police are asked to do too much. I'm a social worker by training. Mm -hmm. Police are asked to do mental health counseling. 
domestic violence counseling. They're, they're expected to go when there's a fire. They do. So the defunding makes sense that money would be shifted over to health sustaining, life sustaining activities and services. So my issue is, is reimagining completely what, what policing and public safety for black people would look like if it was like what white people got. What would that look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the danger in going third uh, because police have their roots in the black codes and in mm -hmm. um, uh, slave patrols. That's where they have their roots. They were originally organized. And then, Watson, when we look at the movie Birth of a Nation, police were actually organized to make sure that they controlled this creature called the black man. And so whenever they roll up on a black man, it's hostile from the beginning because, as uh, Dr. Skinner said, they don't roll up on us to help or to see how they can help. They roll up on us to see what we've done wrong and for what reason we can be taken to jail. I want to reimagine, like Otis said, Dr. Moss, and I want us to reimagine that an African-American calls the police and we get the same treatment that a white person gets, that they call us, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. Yes, I don't ever read about or hear about police coming to a community with battering rams, breaking down the wrong door right. because mm -hmm. they think mm -hmm. that they got someone. I don't ever hear about police going into a home of a white person, shooting the white person eight times for mistaken identity and looking for drugs. It doesn't happen. So let's reimagine. Let's reimagine that police can treat us just like they treat white people. And I don't even know if they need a whole lot of retraining for that. They just need to know that they know how to do it when they go to one side of town. They should know how to do it when they come to our side of town. Yeah. 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 I, I just add, uh, police officers need to be public servants. They need to, they need to, uh, I, I think there's been a culture in some places where they got to look out for their own institution and only after that's taken care of. So that's what we talk about when we talk about something like qualified immunity. That's what we talk about when we talk about something like 1033 and demilitar uh, demilitarization. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I agree with the comments that have been made. I, I'm looking for uh, uh, police departments that uh, show in policy and practice. And I also think this what Pastor Meeks raised, the cultural aspect of this, that, that this isn't just about program and policy. This is about having fundamental respect for the communities in which you serve. Um, so all that has to be uh, of a piece. I, I, I will add, um, I, and I think everybody else agrees, I'm not content for uh, us waiting until we have the perfect legislative makeup to, to act on anything. There's political will now, and uh, I think this is the time we need to press people to act. Even if we can't get everything that we're looking for, there are serious proposals on the table that will at least be begin to show some, some movement forward as opposed to accepting stalemate until uh, until we get filibuster proof of this and that no, uh, uh, legislators need to legislate. Mm -hmm. And I, I would add to, to what was uh, just stated, uh, just one particular example, Pol armed response should not be the go-to for everything. 
There's no reason that we should have a police officer responding to a third grader, a fourth grader in a public school. Uh, police officers couldn't secure a building, but they should not be used yes. instead of counselors, mental health officers, and teachers. And we have militarized things. Like my father says it this way. He says, we live in a country that uh, feels more uh, is more secure in protecting the right of the of a gun owner than protecting the rights of a child. And and we have to begin to rethink everything when it comes to armed response. We have a love affair with guns. We have a mythos, uh, the whole Old West mythos about a person with a gun. And we have to break down a culture that is deeply connected to uh, the weaponization of black bodies that when a person puts on a uniform, they enter into a cultural system uh, that sees black people as the enemy that must be controlled. Dr. Moss, you know, I was the uh, chairman of the State Board of Education for four years. And when you defund nurses, defund counselors, and you right. give uh, $1.5 million to police in a school, you're actually paying the police to be there when the nurses and the counselors used That's to right. be yes. You took the same money, the same money that you don't have now for nurses and counselors, but you have it for police. So I agree with that point 100%. Yeah. And that really goes to the defunding piece. Yeah. That police see themselves as public servants and that black people pay their salaries too. Yes. Pay their health care, pay for their pensions. Mm -hmm. so once they understand that, hopefully they'll get the cultural piece a little tighter. Yeah. But one of the great challenges I think that uh, that always sits within this is the police union. Yes, uh, the police unions have been the enemy of yes. black people. The, the black police officers organization in 1979 in Chicago put forth all of the recommendations in order to reform, change, shift the culture, reimagine the Chicago Police Department in 1979. The consent, the consent decree that came down had the exact same things they said in 1979. Black police officers have recognized this for so long. They said there is a problem, and it usually starts with the, uh, the police unions that are invested in a, certain way of, in a certain way of operation. They have such political capital, and they don't want to lose that. Well, that, that is why the policeman who had his knee on George Floyd could look, would put his hands in his pocket, look dead into a camera for nine minutes, almost nine minutes, eight minutes and 46 seconds in a smug-like way because he knew the police union, to uh, Dr. Moss's point, would back him up mm -hmm. and that he might be indicted, but he would never be convicted. That mm -hmm. was a smug look that they have got my, the police union have got my back. That has to stop. Yeah, well, I know that Watson is eventually going to go to the question of police unions, but in that we are here. Yeah. If a policeman is uh, found in a, in a crime, if something happens, the police has 48 hours before right. he even has to answer what happened. Uh, the young man that fell asleep in Wendy's, 
he was given an immediate breathalyzer. Mm -hmm. No policeman is given a breathalyzer immediately. He has 48 hours to go home, think about what happened, mm -hmm. get his story together, yes. talk to his union mm -hmm. rep, collaborate. Mm -hmm. If I'm stopped by the police within, within five minutes of the stop, they know my entire history. They know everything about me. If a policeman does something wrong, or if he has 18 complaints against him, we don't know anything. That's right. all because of the power of the police union. Right. And one of the things that we're gonna to have to do as it relates to reform, is we're gonna to have to reform the police contract. Mm. We're gonna to have to work with our cities to make sure that we understand the contracts that the police are signing. Because right now, people in most cities don't have a clue of the privileges that police get. Mm -hmm. And a policeman, if there's a shooting, he that policeman should have to go in immediately right. and answer what mm -hmm. happened without, that. if Otis and I got in trouble, they would separate us both. So my mm -hmm. story and Otis's story, we don't know what each other is saying. They should separate police. They should uh, get the story. And so the power is in the union and we have to break the union contract. That's that's the whole point of police reform. Is there any reason why a policeman should not be fined or dismissed or put on leave for turning off the, the camera, the body camera? Because I'm hearing over and over stories of where police intentionally turn off their body camera so there's no accountability. There should be, I mean, in addition to all the other actions that should be taken, to me, that is a travesty. He or she is saying, I have planned in advance not to be accountable. Yeah. And it requires oversight. And if these police departments won't uh, provide the oversight themselves, and I mean, we all work, worked on it. The Department of Justice has to step in. And we saw that near the tail end of, uh, near, especially during the second term of the Obama administration, the current administration has scaled basically all of that back along with the uh, Civil Rights Division of the, of the Department of Justice entirely. And, and that, that needs to change. If, if these police departments uh, won't hold their own officers accountable, then the federal government has to hold these police departments accountable. Right. Well, we jumped on the land police accountability. I want to go back to the question about unions. I think, Pastor Meeks, you brought up a wonderful subject. What, uh, in your views, I, I know, Pastor Meeks, you've talked about this in different settings. In your views, what should it look like? As a, uh, what should it look like? What should the, the relationship be between the cities, polices, police, and the unions, in your view? Well, in, in my view, the all, all unions are set up to protect their constituency. Teachers unions are designed to protect mm. teachers. Uh, police unions are designed to protect police. Fire unions are designed to protect. So I understand that, but it should not be so skewed on one side because when they are protecting the police, who protects citizens? Mm -hmm. where, where is our union? Where is the group that actually lobbies for us? And so I would be advocating for a citizen's bill of rights. What rights do I have at a traffic stop? What right do I have to say or not say, get out the car, not get out the car? 
Where are our rights? Mm -hmm. If all of the rights are on the side of the policemen, just because they have a union and they are, as Dr. Skinner said, we pay their salary, we pay their health care, we send their kids to school, yet they have all the rights and we have none. And so I advocate for a citizen's bill of rights. We should have some rights and we should have people advocating on our behalf. Who's our advocate? That's a good question. Anyone else want to take a stand on the police union question? One of the, the key issues in and around this whole piece of defunding, reimagining, uh, and abolishing is the idea of public health workers uh, who are called instead of the police. One of the reasons that police unions fight against that is that, that they will not be a part of the union. So you'll have an entire group of people uh, who will not be accountable to the union because they're mental health workers. They're called in. They don't, they don't have armed response. Uh, they're a social worker. They, 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 they're, they're in a, a completely different body, which would then call into account when they observe things, they're not under that contract. So part of the argument on the other side has been that they're going to lose union power and negotiation power with the city because they're going to have all these healthcare workers, social care workers, nurses, a variety of people who would be called in, in the case of an emergency. Since most people really don't need an armed response um, when you're annoyed by your neighbor's fence or something of that nature, um, or somebody is asleep in the car in Wendy's, do you need an armed response? 90% of the, the reason that a police officer is called is not called because you need someone with a gun. In normal time, you need someone who can negotiate. Yeah. Mike, let me ask you a question. Have you Are you familiar with Tim Scott's reform bill? Yeah, yeah, I am. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> uh, I appreciate Senator Scott uh, providing some some thoughts, some action, uh, particularly from his side of the aisle. It's important to note that there are some provisions of the bill that that are that that are helpful. That some of which are included in the Democrats' bill. So just for folks, so Senator Tim Scott put forward this legislation that failed to receive a vote in the Senate to move forward to debate. So right now there's a stalemate, but Senator Scott's legislation would increase federal reporting requirements for use of force. It would uh, uh, up the use of uh, police body cameras with grant programs. It would create a database of police disciplinary records. It would make lynching a federal crime uh, like the Senate tried to do, but uh, a, a senator from Kentucky filibustered that bill single-handedly. Uh, uh, and uh, there's also training for de-escalation. These are important things. It's not commensurate with the task ahead of us. It's not enough. Uh, it, it's, weak, it's weak sauce in my view. I, I will say I would prefer, um, and, and you know, the, this is a difficult conversation. There's political strategy and good faith uh, I think we're in a moment right now where there's political will that I can't depend on six months from now. Uh, I think we've spent a lot of time depending on elections turning out a certain way. So I, I, I would like to see if there if there are measures that uh, we got that we have 60 votes in the Senate where folks agree on, like a database, like use of force, like banning, like let, let's move forward with that. If, the, if Democrats are concerned that just because Trump signs a bill with some 
very low uh, low floor measures that all of a sudden people are going to com be confused about what he stood for his entire presidency. And that's on Democrats. Let's not stall reform, any reform at all, so that we could get some ideal legislation down the road. But th that's my basic approach. I, I think I, I appreciate Senator Scott at least showing some leadership in a Senate that Republicans control. It's not enough. But mm -hmm. there are some pieces there that that will at least uh, uh, effectuate the political will we're seeing in the streets to a certain extent, as opposed to just talking and holding press conferences. You know, Watson, the best kind of piece of legislation in the past is something called a bipartisan piece of legislation. And so why couldn't Senator Tim Scott sit down with Senator Kamala Harris, Senator uh, Cory Booker, uh, why couldn't they sit down together since they're all African-American? This new legislation is designed to help the situation with African-American and police. Why couldn't they sit down and put together a joint piece of legislation so that they would have the support of Democratic senators and Republican senators out the gate? Mm -hmm. Whenever one legislative body, a la Republican or a la Democrat, Put together a piece of legislation without the other one it's almost a trojan horse it, mm -hmm. it's not going anywhere and so the best thing that tim scott could have done was to seek his colleagues across the aisle and to figure out what is it that get their input but when that wasn't done you know his bill was kind of history anyway and i would add that one of the things that any type of policy that we do we have to connect it uh, to one, the war on drugs, the fact that we have uh, policing that is funded through federal grants based upon how many people you arrest in so-called drug cases. But, you know, homicide is not, it's not, you don't get grants for that. Sexual assaults, you don't get additional grants, which also connects it to the, uh, to the military industrial complex. So the surplus of military um, items goes to our police department. So it becomes really a round robin of people really making more money. And in the process, black people are the targets and are the ones who are hurt in the process. We have to break the connection of prosecutors and uh, police departments uh, working together on, in certain aspects, in certain aspects of of this idea of the war on drugs. Uh, we're gonna have to have reformist policies. We're gonna have to have new type of prosecutors. And we no longer can have the militarization of police. The police are not supposed to look like they are in Iraq. They are not the military. They're not trained like the military. And it makes no sense that we're giving all of our military surplus material, changing the color, and then giving it to police departments because they have achieved a certain number of arrests around so-called drugs, and then they place more black and brown bodies in jail that are now privatized, so another group makes money, and then they have been lobbying the same people, i.e. Tim Scott, Mitch McConnell, to ensure that they maintain their particular um, contracts. Yep. It is a dirty and corrupt system, and we have to call it out, and the war on drugs is a war on black people. And it's also connected to the dysfunction, destruction, and pain that is witnessed in the way that policing functions in America because they're continuing to find a way to uh, make money off of black bodies. 
Yeah, you always have to follow the money. I think uh, Dr. Moss is absolutely correct. Uh, I think that it would have been logical, uh, Dr. Meek, Bishop Meek, for um, the three members to have gotten together. Well, uh, Congresswoman Bass, uh, chair of the Black Caucus, uh, would be one of those that Tim Scott, Senator Scott, could have met with. I don't think that was possible because the Senate basically, you know, the legislation starts with values and values get translated into legislation that gets translated and funded into public policy. If the core value of the Senate, head by McConnell, Senator McConnell, is that this is not a systemic problem. There are few bad apples. And that if you get rid of these bad apples, everything will be all right. Well, we know that's not true because even after uh, George Floyd's death, there have been more chokeholds. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's really, I mean, the House bill was bipartisan. It was 236 to 181. So they had Republicans. So I think the question is going to be, how do you get, and this is where the church has a role to play, because we're not as aggressive and, and as in outreaching to our, our leaders in Congress. The church has power it is not using. You have black people in states run by Republican members of Congress who cannot get elected, hello, without the black vote. Places where we're 30%, Mississippi and Alabama and others. So our black churches should be connecting to those members of Congress. Because I'll tell you the group they don't want to see up there are black pastors. That's right. So I'm just saying that I I don't totally disagree with the idea that they should get together, but two warring philosophies here. One is bad apples, a few bad apples, so we just are going to tell the police it's not nice to do chokeholds. But if it's banned and police can't move from one city where they have been convicted, let's say not convicted because they're hardly ever convicted, but indicted, okay, for killing unarmed black people, they can't get a job anyplace else, it would stop. All of this is about money. And I think that's why moving money from the police budgets the way Los Angeles did, 150 million, and put it into community services, for some of those services that Dr. Moss just talked about, nursing, uh, mental health services, other health services, that's the way it really should go. We should, it's about the budget. It's about funding. But I don't see the two coming together until there's an understanding that this is systemic. It, it goes back to controlling black bodies. Actually, it goes into filling up uh, prisons. Absolutely. It goes into filling yeah. up jails because you can look at when schools are defunded and jails are built, that's a philosophy at work. And that's what we have to counter now. And I don't think people have been out there for six weeks protesting for a weak bill. I think they need to deal with this as though it is a crisis. It is a public health crisis. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many angles to take this because we do need to discuss that the criminalization of black men in order to fill up privatized jails, uh, Correction Corporation of America, which is the number one prison stock, mm-hmm. they've changed their mm-hmm. names, but now they are into making ankle bracelets uh, so that when prisoners are out, they're still profiting. 
and they're still making money. There are about 250 products that prisoners make in prison right now for private corporation. And in America, America must have an, an permanent underclass. And so it's now the prisoners and they keep uh, making sure that whatever the laws are, Otis, uh, if, if it's drug laws, the whole crime bill was structured to keep black men in jail. So right. we do we do have a great discussion that we have to have there around black people and being in jail. But I think also we need a conversation about the white evangelical church. And you said that what would scare Washington or whoever would be black ministers, what would really scare them is black and white ministers. There's no question about that. Who, who, and I'm we need to counting on white evangelicals. That's why I said it that way. Oh yeah, yeah. We're not counting on them, but we have to get somehow to the moral conscience because that is the group that Washington is listening to, and that is the group I'm sure Otis is, and Watson. They've had their white friends calling them saying, "Well, yeah. what is it that I could do? You know, I want you to know that I'm with you." Well, that's what we need them to do. We need them not to just carry a sign to say Black Lives Matter. We need them to get in the trenches with us exactly. because when we go to Washington together, we can see some movement. Yeah, we don't need any more allies. We need accomplices. We got enough allies. We, yeah. we appreciate the allies. We need yeah, we have from been ally to an advocate to accomplice. We need you to uh, be accomplices in this work. Yeah. We have, I don't know about you all, but I have been on the phone with every white friend I have who asked, What can I do? Yeah. Um, but, and so we need white folk right alongside us as accomplices. But I, all I'm saying is that if black pastors did their part, it would make a difference. Yeah. They will not, they, they in Washington, I don't know about the state legislature, but in Washington, D.C., in the Congress, groups of pastors going up on Capitol Hill. Oh, it makes a difference. Yeah. Well, let me ask you guys this. This is a good conversation, by the way. Very good conversation. Um, thank you, uh, Mike, and, and you all bouncing around Senator Scott's question. That was a question that came from our online forum. And uh, so I wanted to toss that in because it got asked twice. Uh, let me let me ask you guys this. Is there any legislation that you've heard so far that legislation that I hear you. Yeah, you just broke up. What about, can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. Sorry for that. Is legislation that you heard on the federal or state level you think would be good to see uh, that would that would really address this policing question? Well, I'm not giving up on the legislation in the Congress. Uh, the uh, bill is going to be taken up after the 4th when Congress comes back. So there's still time for people to act. I'm not sure about the states. I'm not sure we're there yet. I think people are still trying to sort out the defunding versus reimagining questions uh, to even, I don't know of any on the state level. I'm saying Tim Scott is bringing his bill back up and McConnell is committed to that. And they're trying to get something to the president before you know the house in. Now look, they were far apart on the stimulus. They were. They were years apart and they got together on that. I think Republicans do not want it to be said that they went home and did nothing on police. Mm -hmm. 
And historically, the, the black community has never witnessed policing that worked in our interest, ever. There, there is no model, period. Um, and, uh, you know, as has as been stated, that you have other communities that have models, you know, officer friendly. Uh, but uh, we, again, what, the idea of reimagining, I, I, I harp on that because one of the greatest injuries of oppression is your imagination, the ability to be able to see something that ne does not exist. And, and that's where we are at this moment. I think that there is a, a throng of, of young people who recognize that this doesn't work um, and we have to reimagine something new that we have done, we have defunded schools, we've defunded mental health, we have defunded everything and we have, we have increased the public safety budget, but we as black people don't feel safe. Um, when it comes to engaging somebody who we pay the bills, we pay their salary. And, and that is meaning we like, some people say like the system is broken. It's not broken, it's working the way it was designed to work. We have to reimagine what we desire. And that means something yeah. completely yeah. new. And that means abolishing the way in which we envision public safety and, uh, and public health, as, as, as Dr. Skinner stated, is the way that we have to look at things. We have to see this as a public health crisis. It's a public health bill, yeah. not a criminal bill. Yeah. This is a bill to ensure that our children have futures. This is a bill to make sure that our elders are taken care of. I not think that when we, get, when we get to the point that the criminal justice system does not need a quota anymore. There, there are 8,000 people in the Cook County Jail right mm -hmm. now. Correct. The Cook County Jail must have eight, eight to 10,000 people a day to break even. There are, ba ba uh, there are sheriffs to be paid, the bailiff, there are judges, mm -hmm. there's court costs, there's all kind of stuff. So they need 10,000 bodies every day. So when they release some, guess what they do? They go back and get some more. Whenever we come to the point where criminal uh, putting black men in jail, black women in jail is not profit anymore, we'll stop some of this over-policing too. But until we get to the point that the profit is taken out of prison, it's going to be hard because they're meeting their quota. They have to meet right. their quota. They have to meet their quota in uh, county jails, and then there's the state jail. Mm -hmm. In the decade of the 90s here in Illinois, we built a new prison uh, the whole decade. Mm -hmm. Communities downstate were lobbying for prisons. A mm -hmm. field prison in Taylorville, Illinois, means 500 jobs for the Taylorville people who live down there. Mm -hmm. It means a Walmart because when Pookie's mama come down and his girlfriend to see him in jail, they have to have a place to go buy Pampers. So that means Walmart comes to town. When visiting hours are over, that means a hotel has to come to town because it's too far to go back to Chicago. When That means a movie theater has to come to town because they gotta have something to do while they're waiting to see him tomorrow. That means a bus system has to run through there because they need, so the whole economy is built on jails. And when we get to the point that we stop jailing people, we're going to see some of the over-policing stop. But as long as we're profiting off of jails, 
I think police will always be a part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 when you mentioned the Cook County Jail, that's the largest mental health facility in the United States. Mm-hmm. The wow. majority of people yeah. in the Cook County Jail should be in a public health facility. They are on some type of medication uh, dealing with their mental health. Yeah. And even the sheriff says he wants to defund it. <laughs> so it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense how they function based upon the structure. We do. We have to take the and that's what government is supposed to do to take the profit out of some of these institutions. That's the that's the structure of government. Yes. Privatization is absolutely destructive. And so this is a continual story when it comes to black people from slavery to the peanut system, the sharecropping system, you name it to the war on drugs. This is another way in which uh, you have seen people profit off of us. And that right there, uh, Pastor Meeks, is is on target. We, that we, we have to use our power. And those who ask what they, what, how can they help? Yes. You can partner with the black community uh, in order to mm-hmm. defund uh, these actions that are causing uh, over-policing and placing people in privatized jails. It's amazing to me uh, that evangelicals love Jesus so much, they say this, uh, but yet they are, we are serving a savior who had a state execution. We're serving a savior who understands what it means to be in occupied territory. Guess what? The Romans over-policed the Jews. <laughs> I mean, if anybody should understand this issue, it should be people of faith, especially if you, if you love Paul's writings. I mean, he had some issues. He, had, he was in jail, too. So I mean, it just amazes me that uh, we don't make these connections and especially other communities uh, disassociate uh, the issues of mass incarceration from their faith and over-policing from their faith. There's some really silly conversations going on about the defunding of people say, well, you don't want any police. The African-American community, we should state, we can't say that enough, wants public safety and we want violence prevention measures. We want the same protection that white people get. We want to get to the point where we don't have to have, quote, the talk with any of our children. Right. Okay, so that that's what we want. So we want good quality trained uh, police, but we want a public health oriented system, a wellness system where all the people feel safe. That's what we really want. Yeah. Now, whatever. I don't think that system exists. I think he's right. I think Dr. Moss, you're absolutely right, because the system was designed the way it is functioning now and the results are coming the way they are now. If nothing is done, we will see more George Floyds, more mm-hmm. Breonna Taylors, more Ahmaud Aubrey's. We will see that. I pray that doesn't happen, but until unless the system is dramatically changed, that's what we will see. We want Officer Friendly and Andy of Mayberry back. <laughs> and the thing about Andy of Mayberry, wasn't no black, wasn't no black people in Mayberry. And so he was that's nice right. to but we were raised at the, with the concept of officer friendly, but we can't find him. And that's mm-hmm. what we want. And I agree with, with you, Dr. Skinner. Uh, we got to have the same treatment that everybody else is getting. Watson, I do want to applaud your generation. And I do want to applaud the young people because the young people, they're not waiting on us to fix nothing. They're not waiting on us to come up with a solution. 
they have taken to the streets all over the world and young people are saying we want this matter fixed and so i do applaud young people for stepping into the fray and keeping the pressure on to the point that we're having this conversation tonight and conversations like this are being held all over the country let me ask a question we've, we've got about um 13 minutes 12 and a half minutes and then i think we can get some good things on this question this is this is kind of our final question um that i would love to hear some conversation on what are some practical ways that the church can unite locally and nationally across racial and theological lines to fight for police reform yeah let me just suggest one thing that black pastors have more power than they're using we should be meeting with police chiefs. They work for us. And we should be making clear that we are watching how you're functioning. We want to be partners with you in just policing. That should happen all over. There are 18,000 police units in the United States. And we're everywhere in the United States. I'll say that's one practical thing the church can do. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. If, uh, I just want to affirm, uh, Dr. Moss said something that was, is, in my view, the question. Uh, I haven't. I've been working on this essay for a couple months. It should come out at the end of this week, and uh, I won't belabor the point. But I just want to pull out. This is ultimately a question about desire. Our systems are set up at the end of the day the way that that citizens want them, and so. When, when folks come to this question of law enforcement, that question of what, of what you desire is just fundamental here. And, and then just to the previous conversation, um, uh, it's important to note 90% of this policy is done at the state and local level. And so, uh, and so that's why Dr. William Skinner's point about uh, uh, pastors being especially effective because there, there's just less degrees of separation. You're meeting with your police chief, you're meeting with city council and state legislators. And so that, that's key. On, on the federal side, though, I, I just note uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Congressman Justin Amash have a qualified immunity bill, uh, a standalone bill. Uh, there is the House Democrats bill, which I think in terms of scale is much closer in, in scale to kind of what you want to start a conversation uh, with. And so, and campaign hasn't officially endorsed legislation, though though we're looking at it uh, very seriously. Um, but but just to name those pieces of legislation. And the last thing I'd say, well, when it comes to your question, Watson, and really to what much of what has been raised um, in in his last in his last sermon, King uh, told the story of the Good Samaritan, and he talks about the Levite and the priest. And it's amazing. I think often we think about uh, the Levi and the priest and, and we think, oh, these were indifferent, cold hearted people. How could you pass someone on the other side of the road? And King says that he tries to empathize and, and he says this amazing thing. He says, uh, I could, he said, I could see why Jesus would tell the story this way. It's a winding road. And I could imagine the Levi and the priest saying, if I went over, uh, maybe the same person that attacked. That, that man lying in the road would attack me and then I want to be of use to anybody. Uh, and, and King says, he said, he says, they approached this situation and asked, well, what would happen to me if I did something? And he says, the question we need to ask, what he called the dangerous unselfishness, is what would happen to the man if I do nothing? 
And when it comes to this conversation about law enforcement, when it comes to white evangelicals in this question, so often we're asking, what will happen to me if I do something? What will the unintended consequences be? What will happen uh, if uh, if police aren't aren't there whenever I I, I, I want them? What will happen if uh, th this this uh, militarized police force isn't there to control things? And instead, the question: What will happen if we do nothing? I, I so appreciate the listening and lamenting and the pulpit swaps and all of it. But if, if you're lamenting, lamenting doesn't necessarily lead to action. You could lament something and say, oh, gosh, I, I, I wish that wasn't happening. What an awful thing that is, is happening over there. But you could say, but, you know, as a rational person, I couldn't possibly cross the road. I feel awful for what happened that that, that poor man. But but as a rational, I got to protect myself, my family. And that's the conversation we need to have. I love the listening, love the lamenting. When it comes to policy, people start people start feeling like, oh, now you're stepping on my territory. And it's not your territory. We live we live in a democracy. <laughs> we live in a pluralistic democracy. And so what what can we do? We need to enter a conversation about policy that doesn't about these issues that doesn't leave policy off the table. That doesn't right. leave off the influence mm -hmm. of, that you have as a citizen and especially some of these pastors and evangelical institutions. I was very happy to see prison fellowship, for instance, that hasn't done a lot on policing. They're, they're on the criminal justice side, prison fellowship stepped in and said that Senator Scott's bill wasn't enough. They said they couldn't support it. And they said that more had to be done. They put qualified immunity on the table as something they were looking at. We need more of that. We need we need folks, everybody speaking into the situation as it is and not trying to uh, emotionalize uh, their way out of not doing anything. Well, don't forget the Congressional Black Caucus bill. It does have a good starting point, as, as Michael said, banning chokeholds and setting a national registry so bad police can't go and get hired in other places and having qualified immunity and uh, and the like. Those, those are some issues we really do need, a national, that kind of national registry. Um, so I think that black churches could uh, get that on your, your Facebook page or whatever and talk about it. You, you, yes, it needs to go, for, you say it could go further, yes, but it's a good starting point. And yeah. I think black churches should get familiar with that and support it. The, the more you support a the decent, the best bill, the easier it is when they go into conference. Let's say the Senate passes something. The more it easy is for them to keep that language in conference. So let's support the Congressional Black Caucus bill. I agree that we need to be supporting the Congressional Black Caucus. I often wonder when I hear that Good Samaritan story, that what would have happened if the priest and the Levite had gotten together and decided to fix the road. Obviously, something was wrong with the road if everybody who walked down there got robbed. Something is happening in our public schools, for instance, when black boys are dropping out uh, before high school and when they're deciding how many prisons to build based on who can read at the third grade. Yeah. Some, of, some of our gathering, we need to start doing some road fixing. Mm -hmm. I do agree with meeting with our police chiefs but when we meet with our police chiefs, we have to be their ally in dealing with unions again because mm -hmm. police chiefs mm -hmm. can't do nothing with the unions either. They, yeah. they are trying to get some of these things done, but their hands are tied. The police yeah. hands are tied. And so they have to let us know 
the black church, the, the people, the community, why are your hands tied? They say, well, the contract says we can't do this, this, or that. Who negotiates the contract? The mayor negotiates the contract on behalf of the city. Who elects the mayor? The people do. So that needs to be one of our platforms yeah. when a person is running for mayor. We need to be able to say, will you negotiate this type of contract? So in our getting together, could you imagine if every church, rather than singing 94 praise and worship songs on Sunday, if we just sang 93 and took five minutes to say, okay, we're going to talk about the police contract okay. and what everybody needs to be saying. And all of us leave church saying the same thing. That's one of the things that the church can do. Yeah, I think that's that's tremendous, uh, Pastor Meeks. I, I fully uh, agree that we need, on a local level, uh, one, uh, community accountability, citizens accountability with police, with indictment power. Two, there needs to be a fully open source contract negotiation, meaning citizens who are actually allies, uh, advocates, and accomplices who can review the contract. So it's not just the mayor, right. but this team of people mm -hmm. who, who are not in any way beholden to a union that they can put literally on blast. For, you mean 48 hours before you have to make a statement? Oh, can, do, can I get that too? If I, yeah. you know, <laughs> give me 48 hours. Um, so, um, why are you fighting against the mental health piece? Well, you know, just, just going through all of these things, it get a little, give you a little story. Uh, we were part of a group called United Power. And with United Power, we were, it's just an organizing group. We were looking at how do we remove some of the guns in reference to uh, Chicago. One of the proposals was bringing these churches together. And we wanted municipalities uh, to not purchase from gun manufacturers where those guns end up in the hands of people in our community who are doing damage. Well, guess who was the big fight again? The big fight we had. The hmm. fight was with police unions because police unions are also in sync with the NRA. Yeah. And the NRA is in sync with gun manufacturers because they saw that as a way uh, to reduce the number of guns and reduce the profit. So we really do need people um, who are working uh, in terms of public theologians, uh, public um, have a public moral witness yeah. who are raising questions. Mm -hmm. And the one way that I believe that uh, evangelical churches can, can work with, with black churches is we need those voices of accomplices who can speak with authority around these contracts publicly, because guess what? The people who are head of the police unions go to your church. That's right. And, and we need those voices to speak with authority in, um, in connection with black voices. We also need to vote, not just at the top of the ballot. Yes, come on, come on, say it doc. <laughs> down the prosecutors to uh, the attorneys general, the district attorneys, the school board, the mayor, all the way down. Pastors could, on their Facebook Live, take a minute now, start, uh, you could actually start right now downloading those ballots and start uh, educating your people about the impact on mm -hmm. their lives of every item on that ballot. Judges, mm -hmm. others. 
we need to be really smart as voters. Yeah, that's very helpful, uh, especially Dr. Skinner. We talk about uh, here in Chicago with the local and campaign chapter that no one knows who these local judges are. People vote a party line or whatever name sounds familiar. And some of these judges are doing absolute terrible damage. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we don't we, we just and then we're looking crazy trying to figure out what's going on. We need to know who they are and find find critical, find good ways to educate our people. Yeah. Sheriffs are on the ballot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They need That's to right. be accountable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I, I want to thank all of you for being here. Uh, and, you know, you all have uh, said a lot of great things and you can't see the, the live comments, but I can. A lot of questions that popped up that we could not answer and, and amens and hallelujahs over here as well. Um, before we leave, can you tell everybody where to find you on social media? Uh, yes, I'm at uh, Skinner Leadership. Skinner Leaders. Skinner Leaders, one word, dot O-R-G. That's our, our uh, web address. And at William Skinner, Twitter, my Twitter handle, at William Skinner. Jay Meeks at sbcoc.org. Okay. Uh, on Twitter, at OM3. Uh, on IG, uh, at Otis Moss III. Uh, you can find me on Facebook or at uh, Trinity United Church of Christ or trinitychicago.org. Uh, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Michael R. Ware, and then also check out the Ann campaign, just at Ann campaign on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you. You all have you've been listening to the Jew three listen, lament and legislate as we've had wonderful discussion about listening and lamenting and legislation around police brutality. And I want to thank you all for chiming in for part one and part two. And again, please feel free to reach out to any of our panelists if you have further questions or comments or want to connect further in conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.